Alrighty, people, it's 6.01 p.m., and it's Wednesday, and that means it's time for the Mark Riley Show. I am he. Man, things are so busy out here in New York and uh, across the country, and the weather is still so whack. Uh, we had snow yesterday, and that ain't even an April Fool's joke. Uh, right off the presses, because I wanted—I uh, I didn't put this in the template because it had basically happened after I uh, actually created it. Senator Bob Menendez has been indicted. Uh, I don't want to misspeak about the number of charges he's facing, but apparently uh, if he's convicted, he's facing a couple of 15-year sentences that could, if he had an evil judge, end up running concurrently. You won't hear a lot of bipartisan back and forth on this because, as it turns out, uh, Republicans and Democrats seem equally to get caught up in alleged corruption. So uh, I I think rather than test the boundaries of mutually assured destruction by going after one of the others, they see he's the reason why. No. We're not going to do that this time around. At least I don't think so. So we got a bunch of stories, and we have two, count them, two very special guests. Um, let's start the show with this one here. Uh, the Daily News is getting bids from both Cablevision and the owner of Gristidis. You know Gristidis if you're in New York, the supermarket chain, John Katsimadidis. They're both apparently bidding or have put in bids to take over ownership of the New York Daily News. Now, here's a question for you. Why would these people, and of course the guy who owns it already, Mort Zuckerman, is a billionaire himself, but why would either Jim Dolan or John Katzenmedidis, or for that matter, anybody else, want to buy a newspaper that's losing money? And of course, when we talk about newspapers that lose money, all of these papers in this time, I'm not sure about Newsday, But certainly the Times, the Post, Daily News, they're all losing money. Why? I believe because with few exceptions, because I have friends that work there at all of those papers, but with few exceptions, they become irrelevant. You know, they they follow all kinds of ridiculous assertions. Why the Daily News seems to have a love affair with uh, Kim Kardashian, utterly beyond me. And if one of these two individuals buys the paper, I'd be very interested to see if the Kardashian fantasy continues, at least on the web pages of the Daily News. But leave, be that as it may. Uh, now, it, it, it's actually, according to Reuters uh, and the New York Post, Cablevision has offered a dollar for the paper. Katsimidis uh, is uh, apparently submitted a more serious bid sometime last week. Uh, They have both been considered front-runners, according to the New York Times, in buying the news from Zuckerman. Uh, He sent a memo to staff members last month. He said that he had been approached about selling the newspaper and, quote, thought it would be prudent to explore the possibility. Now, Lord Zuckerman can afford to lose whatever the Daily News loses, and I don't want to misspeak about how much that is. But uh, he can afford it. You ain't got to worry about the Daily News losing money. So, you know, come see, come saw. We'll see who buys it. It's important only in that these are daily newspapers in the city of New York, the greatest city in the world. I'm sorry, those of you who are not in New York uh, or vicinity, 
New York's the greatest city in the world. I'm sorry, because I know this is an internet radio station that goes all over the world. So I don't want anybody in Singapore or Tokyo or Rio de Janeiro to get mad with me about this. But, I, I you know, New York is New York. So we'll see what happens. Um, I don't know whether people in our listening audience are rooting for either both or none of these people to end up with a successful bid to buy the Daily News. Uh, story number two. And we have a, a, a group of police stories that run more or less one right after the other. So we'll try and get as many of them in as possible before we go to our first guest at 6.15. That's 6.15 Eastern Daylight Savings Time, by the way. Bill Bratton is mad. He's upset. According to the New York Post, he finally reached his breaking point with Bill de Blasio. Now, mind you, Bratton was in a meeting with de Blasio's uh, number one guy, Deputy Mayor Tony, uh, Tony Shores. He's the first deputy mayor. And apparently, Bratton wants funding for a 1,000 more cops. Now, uh, maybe memory serves me wrong here, but I thought when, when uh, the, the whole issue of funding more cops came up, de Blasio said no, and so did Bratton. Well, Bratton apparently has changed his mind. Uh, according to this heated sit-down, and according to sources who inexplicably spoke to the New York Post, uh, Bratton said, quote, if I don't get them from you, I'll go to the city council and get them. I don't, you know, commissioner, don't bet the store that the city council loves you all that much to fund a thousand new cars. I'm not sure that that's a given. I'm not sure that follows, but hey, what the heck? You can take a shot. Uh, Shores said, according to this story in the New York Post, quote, you don't work for the city council. You work for the mayor. And then Bratton apparently left abruptly. And uh, he's, he's repeating, he later on repeated his threat to go to the city council for help overruling the mayor. And, of course, this budget is coming up on June 30th. That's going to be interesting to follow, very interesting to follow. Now, Bratton wants a 1,000 more cops. Is he sure? If he's got a 1,000 more like this clown, Patrick Cherry, who's a detective, he's not a rookie, the guy who blissed out that Uber driver in a video that went viral. First of all, let me say this, because I think some of you have probably seen the video, so I'm not going to get into exactly what this clown guy said or what triggered it, which was trivial, absolutely trivial, not having a turn signal on, and the guy honked at him and the cop went off. Here's the thing. This guy, Cherry, he ought to get fired just for being so stupid as to sell wolf tickets to a driver and not think the guy in the back seat might have a, 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 a phone camera and record the whole thing, which is exactly what happened. So now the CCRB apparently is investigating Cherry. Um, I, I, I can't imagine that they're going to anybody involved in, in checking this stuff out is not going to come away and say, hey, man, you need to be either disciplined, fired, or whatever. You can't file criminal charges against the guy for being an idiot. But believe me, if this is a window into the soul of the NYPD and you want a thousand more guys like Cherry on the force, you got a problem. You got a very serious problem. Going to the city council or going to JoJo the dog face boy to get a thousand more cops. You're not going to get them if you keep up with this kind of nonsense. Uh, 
you know, and, and of course it, it was it went on the internet. Guy uh, who recorded the exchange was Sanjay Seth, and he said felt awful for the driver, but hopefully the internet will give him some justice. We shall see. We shall see. Now, uh, because this is what some people do. I'm not going to say this is what cops do because it's not all cops do this, but this is what some people do to justify this kind of thing. Okay. Uh, Cherry apparently was uh, on his way to work after visiting a, a fellow detective at NYU Langone Medical Center. And apparently this detective, uh, Harry Hill, is in critical condition, went into cardiac arrest during a procedure on his elbow last Thursday. And uh, we pray for this this detective's complete recovery. But to say his nerves, this guy Cherry's nerves were on edge because he just visited an injured and wounded colleague in the hospital is crap. (laughs) Okay. Palladino says, the past five days have been emotionally draining for the members of the JTTF, that's the Joint Terrorism Task Force, dealing with their fellow detectives' health. Despite what some people think, cops have feelings too. Okay, cool. Given. Cops have feelings too. You don't think Uber drivers have feelings too? <laughs> so that you don't end up, you know, slagging the guy's ethnicity, how long he'd been in the country, blah, 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 blah. And to be so stupid as not to think that there was a minute possibility that the guy sitting in the back seat might record you doing this foolishness. To feel that entitled? That's a problem. I'm sorry. It is a problem. Report. NYPD watchdogs only probe seven out of 150 complaints. Now, this is the uh, Office of the New Inspector General, which, by the way, uh, the rank-and-file cops and the unions, the police unions, didn't want these people, didn't want that office created in the first place. So leave it to the New York Post to find out. They're not really doing all that much work. Now, 85 of the complaints, according to the Office of the Inspector General, ended up with internal affairs because they did not concern systemic issues in the department. So uh, complaints were made about wrongful arrests and convictions, officers not taking complaint reports and that sort of thing. The OIG has a staff of 23 investigators, lawyers, and civil rights and community advocates that looked at 57 cases, dismissed all but seven. Well, I mean, that's not all that unusual. That's pretty much what the Civilian Complaint Review Board does. Same same kind of dismissal rate. So... uh, We'll see now if there's going to be any more political heat to either get these people to do more or, which would be the preference of the cops, to get rid of the agency altogether because it didn't need to be created in the first place. Final cop story real, real quick. Staten Island police are being forced to participate in a quota game, again, according to the Daily News, in which they get points for each arrest they make. But if they don't make an arrest over a certain time period, they stand to lose more than the game. According to critics, apparently, if they don't make the quota, they get booted from the command. Now, we've heard this story 
year after year after year. The police jumps up and denies, we don't have quotas, we don't have quotas, we don't have quotas. You know, it's one of those gaming kind of things, like sooner or later, somebody needs to get real with this and either, you know, say out front, okay, they, we got quotas. And the cops need to make this number of arrests, and if they don't, we're going to send them to Siberia. At least they'd be honest. But to talk to us, we don't have quotas. We don't. When time and time and time again, there are stories that cops, and by the way, rank-and-file police officers hate quotas. Trust me on this. They detest quotas. They just want to be able to do their job. Just want to be able to do their job. 14 minutes past the hour of 6 o'clock. Now, you know, this, I consider it to be nonsense, all right? Complete and utter hypocritical nonsense. But, you know, the states of Indiana and Arkansas, in their finite wisdom, have both passed laws that they say promote freedom of religion. Some say, I'm one of them that they're just going after gay people, that they're going after the LGBT community by telling businesses, if your religious beliefs say so, you don't have to deal with gay people. You don't have to deal with the LGBT community. It's been confusing, and there's been so much spin on this, and it's getting to the point that the two governors of the states involved here don't seem to know what ended up being passed into law. They really don't. But we have someone here who's going to help us sort it out. He is a professor of law at the New, at the New York Law School. He is Professor Arthur Leonard. Good evening to you, sir. Thanks so much for joining us. Hello. Pleased to be with you. Let me start out uh, at the beginning, if I can. And, and can you explain to us the genesis of these religious freedom laws? Not necessarily the ones in Arkansas and Indiana, because apparently these laws are like 20-some-odd years old, no? Yeah. Uh, this, this all dates back to a Supreme Court decision from more than 20 years ago. It was a, a situation where a Native American, actually two Native Americans in uh, Oregon who were working for a drug prevention agency, uh, tested positive for having used peyote in a Native American religious ceremony. And after they lost their jobs, they filed for unemployment benefits and they were turned down on the grounds that peyote use was illegal in the state of Oregon, and therefore they were discharged for misconduct and they weren't entitled to benefits. So they filed a lawsuit. They claimed that this placed a burden on their free exercise of religion. Uh, local court agreed with them, and the case went up on appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court, and the U.S. Supreme Court said that religious observers do not have an exemption from complying with general state laws. Mm-hmm. And this caused a lot of consternation in Congress. Uh, so Congress, in fact, uh, uh, Senator Schumer was one of the uh, sponsors of this. And I think he was in the House then. He was one of the sponsors of this uh, Federal Reli- uh, Religious Freedom Restoration Act, which said, basically, if the government imposes an undue burden on someone's free exercise of religion, uh, the government has to prove that they have a compelling justification for doing so and that the limitation they're imposing is the least restrictive way to achieve whatever compelling policy interest they have. Uh, so the idea was to protect 
people like Native Americans who were using peyote or you know people who had very strongly based religious reason for doing something that violates some general law. Uh, and the Supreme Court subsequently said that this Religious Freedom Restoration Act could only apply to the federal government, that uh, Congress did not have the authority to overrule the court's decision as it applies to states. But states could enact their own Religious Freedom Restoration Acts. So starting in the mid-1990s, several states passed similar statutes, very similar to the federal statute. They said uh, that if a uh, statute substantially burdens a person's uh, exercise of religion, that person may be able to claim an exemption, and it would be up to the government to prove that they had a compelling justification for doing it. Uh, this sort of died down. I mean, quite a few states had adopted these, uh, maybe 15, 20 states had adopted these, and then it sort of died down, and then the Hobby Lobby case came along and okay. lit the fire all over again. Uh, because in the Hobby Lobby case, uh, Hobby Lobby, which has uh, these hundreds of stores all over the country uh, where you go in to buy crafts and hobby stuff, but it's a big, big corporation, but it's actually not owned by uh, uh, thousands of shareholders like most publicly traded corporations. It's owned by a few members of a family, and this family is very religiously observant on the Catholic faith, and they have strong objections to abortion, and they were upset that the regulations under Obamacare would require them to provide certain kinds of contraception for their female employees, which they considered to be agents of abortion. Uh, and so they wanted an exemption. And they took the case to the Supreme Court, and the issue was, can a corporation claim free exercise of religion? And the Supreme Court said yes, <laughs> uh, to the surprise of lots of people, the idea that a corporation can practice religion. Uh, I mean, we, we know we have an exception for that for uh, churches that are incorporated. In fact, we have a religious corporation law here in New York under which churches can incorporate, and obviously a church could have a free exercise claim. But a commercial business, a business that's out there to make money, can they practice religion as a business? Uh, and the course, let me yes. stop you for a quick second there and ask you this. Um, Hobby Lobby wasn't specifically aimed at the LGBT community. The no. laws that were passed after the back and forth with the Supreme Court seemingly were not aimed at the LGBT community. Right. They, they, um, they broadly how, apply, but, but, but why does this become an LGBT issue? Well, it's because they didn't think they needed a Religious Freedom Restoration Act in Indiana until on October 6, 2014, the Supreme Court refused to review the Seventh Circuit's decision that says Indiana has to let same-sex couples marry. All of a sudden, same-sex couples in Indiana, since October 6th, have been getting married. And so now, you know, they see these stories from around the country about the uh, florist or the baker or the wedding photographer who refused to do a same-sex wedding and then got sued in a human rights commission uh, for violating a public accommodations law. And so all of a sudden in Indiana, the legislators become concerned that if we're going to have same-sex marriages in Indiana, we got to do something to protect our religiously observant florists and wedding photographers and whoever. And in fact, the, the funny thing is, I just read online today that the first business in Indiana that claims that they are going to seek protection under this law is a pizza parlor. <laughs> they said, no. we will not cater weddings for same-sex couples. And uh, uh, I've been it's chatting with my friends on Facebook pizza. about this, and everyone says that any any same-sex couple who's going to have their wedding catered in a pizza parlor 
they're going to lose all their cred as gay people, you know? Uh, yeah, I, I would say they'd be lose their credibility as newlyweds as well. Yes. And, and I, mean, I think this pizza, parlor, this pizza parlor is trying to drum up business among Christian conservatives. I think that's what they're doing. Uh, okay. They want to attract wedding business. But, uh, but the point is, this is why, you know, Arkansas, too. Arkansas now is uh, they have some court decisions saying they have to allow same-sex marriage. Uh, it hasn't finally gone into effect yet because they're in the Eighth Circuit and the Court of Appeals hasn't ruled yet. But the Supreme Court's going to rule uh, in June on whether same-sex couples have a right to marry nationwide. And so all of a sudden, uh, the uh, religious lobby is busy out there trying to get all the states to pass Religious Freedom Restoration Acts to protect the religiously observant people who don't want their business to have to deal with gay people. Professor, our guest is Professor Arthur Leonard, professor of law at New York Law School. Um, it seems to me, I've always felt that, uh, you know, people uh, hanging religion out there as a reason to say no is, I mean, I'm a Christian, you know, last I checked, I might not be the most observant in the world, but it seems to me that Christianity was not necessarily ideally built on the fundamental principle of saying no to people. What, what, what's wrong with these folks, anyway, from where you sit? Well, you know, I've, I've long thought that people who call themselves Christians but ignore the teachings of Jesus are really uh, being uh, a bit contradictory in their, in their belief systems. You know, uh, and uh, Christianity is about loving your neighbor. Christianity is about compassion for the poor. You know, Christianity is not about uh, shunning people or taking a punitive approach to people. So uh, I think that this is a sort of twisted version of Christianity that says I'm not going to provide my my uh, service, you know, to bake you a cake for your wedding or something like that. <laughs> That's crazy. Professor Leonard, um, I get a sense uh, in terms of the coverage I've seen of this and, and you know, media coverage isn't everything. Mm -hmm. But from what I see, it's almost as though. Uh, some of these religious conservative folks, and including the politicians and the state legislatures that, that, that pass these bills, have seriously miscalculated, never mind public opinion, but the opinion of the business communities where they're located, which is kind of sad to me because, uh, you know, it, sh it says to me that they're, you know, uh, politicians react to business faster than they react to people. But Walmart came out against this thing in Arkansas, No. Yeah, Walmart did, and it seems that the, the lobbying by Walmart's CEO is a major factor in the governor saying he's not going to sign the bill unless they add an amendment to clarify that it can't be used as a defense in a discrimination case. And now the legislature is balking about that. But I thought it was interesting to read that uh, one of the few Republicans, maybe the only Republican in the legislature who crossed over the aisle and voted against this, was the governor's nephew, who was the chair of the Senate Judiciary <laughs> Committee. And, and the governor mentioned at his press conference this morning that his son was one of the people who signed the petition asking him to veto the bill. So yeah, he's got a little that. uprising I in his it. own family against this. Uh, but, you know, I think Pence, uh, the governor of, of Indiana, Mike Pence, he was caught, and I believe him, he was caught totally by surprise here. He didn't think this was such a big deal. But that's because he doesn't really have his air to the ground, you know, and uh, he's he's not paying attention to what's happened elsewhere. Uh, the Arizona legislature passed a bill that wasn't even as bad as the Indiana one, and the business community was up in arms about it, and they pressured the governor, and Governor Jan Brewer, a Republican, vetoed the bill. 
Uh, and uh, I think that's uh, if Pence was paying attention to what was happening there, he he would have, uh, I hope, woken up and realized that he was on the losing end of this argument. Professor Leonard, uh, I have to ask, and forgive my ignorance about this, but I'm wondering, just looking at the sequence of events here, whether or not the fine hand of ALEC, the American Legislative Exchange Council, might have had something to do with the drafting and passage of these bills in these two states. Is there any evidence at all that ALEC's been involved in, in, in putting a buzz in legislators' ears here? I'm not aware of it, but I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, it's, it's the kind of thing that they get behind. Uh, and all of these bills are suspiciously similar in their wording, but of course the pattern for them was set by the federal statute that predates ALEC, I think. It, the federal statute is, I think, 1993. Uh, but of course there are these little tweaks they make to the federal statute. Like the federal statute, uh, a religious belief, we're looking at a, a belief that's part of a, a systematic religious code of some sort, not in Indiana. Any individual who says, I have a religious belief, you don't have to say that uh, my religious belief is part of Christianity or part of Islam or whatever. You just have to say, I have a religious belief that these people shouldn't be allowed to be married. And therefore, I shouldn't be complicit by providing flowers for their wedding or something like that. And it's, it's sort of a, uh, a free pass to ignore uh, a, a city ordinance that says you can't discriminate. Now, one of the other factors in Indiana, and I... This is very interesting to me because I saw there was a list of states where these bills are pending now. And these tend to be states that do not forbid discrimination against gay people anyway. You know, there, there, are, only, there are only about 20 states that have laws forbidding discrimination against gay people. And uh, in many of these states, there are local laws. Uh, for example, in Indiana, the city of Indianapolis has a local law that forbids discrimination. And the mayor, who's a Republican... And the city council are so upset about what happened here with this uh, state law that they passed a resolution calling on the state to repeal it. Wow. Uh, so so the, the point is that this law now is potentially overriding the local lawmaking decision of city councils around the state. There are about a dozen of these municipal laws in Indiana that forbid discrimination against gay people in public uh, accommodations and businesses. Uh, and now they're going to be overridden by a state law where someone is going to raise a defense that I was just following my religion. Uh, is and, there a, uh, a rural-urban divide in your, in your estimate? Very much so, very much so. In fact, this is true in many states, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Texas. The state doesn't have a law, but there are lots of municipal laws. Philadelphia, Harrisburg, Pittsburgh, they all have laws. In fact, the gay rights uh, lobbyists in Pennsylvania figured out they're not going to get anywhere in the state legislature so they've undertaken a campaign to get every municipality to pass a gay rights law. And I think they're up over 25 of them now. Really? You know, tiny, tiny towns are passing gay rights laws in Pennsylvania. So a substantial portion of the population is living in a jurisdiction that bans this discrimination, even though the state doesn't have a law. So the potential for conflict is there. I mean, uh, you know, a, a wedding photographer in a small town in Pennsylvania uh, who doesn't want to do a wedding... There's going to be a local ordinance there. But I believe Pennsylvania has a Religious Freedom Restoration Act. It's, it was part of the earlier wave. Excellent. We don't have one in New York, by the way. We don't have one in New York. No, it would never get through our legislature. The Democrats in the Assembly would never let it get through. Wow, well, that's good to know. <laughs> yes. Professor Arthur Leonard, it's been a joy talking with you. Thank you so much for sorting this out for us, huh? You're most welcome. You take care. Have a great evening. Thank you. Bye-bye.
Bye-bye. Professor Arthur Leonard. He is a professor of law at the New York Law School. It's coming up on 6.30. Man, that went by fast. And we got another guest on the other side of 6.30. Um, it's our good friend Andrew Rosario, sports reporter for Arise TV. Uh, going to talk to him about a couple of things, one of which is relatively trivial, I guess, unless you're a New York Knicks fan. Phil Jackson, the uh, president and uh, Zen master of the Knicks, and by the way, they're going through an awful season. They're 14 and 60 or something like that. Anyway, um, Phil Jackson uh, did a videotape complete with music asking season ticket holders to have faith and be optimistic, and blah, 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 blah. It has become the butt of many a media joke. We'll talk to him about that. We'll also talk to him about the Final Four, and we have a bunch of other stories to get to, so we're going to take a break. But please, 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 and my best James Brown, don't go anywhere. before the hour of 7 o'clock. Man, I love that song. Plum Blossom. I don't know what it is about that song. I just really, really enjoy it. We are so glad you are here with us on the Mark Riley Show. And as mentioned before the break, it is a pleasure to welcome to our microphones Arise Sports Reporter. That's Arise TV. You can find it on your cable systems. Let's say good evening to Andrew Rosario. Andrew, how you doing, my friend? Mark, I'm doing great. How are you tonight? I'm doing fantastic, man. Thanks so much for joining us. Much appreciated. Sure. Now, let me start out with the Phil Jackson thing. Uh, I mean, did, did he do this deliberately to become the butt of media jokes or what? It looks like the media's had a field day with him uh, about this uh, uh, kind of video he sent to season ticket holders telling them that despite the, facts and, uh, the fact that the Knicks stink, there's a plan in place, and please take heart. Mark, let me tell you, only in the absurd world of Jim Dolan could something like this happen, especially with a guy like Phil Jackson, whose reputation precedes itself. Um, you know, can they decide that they want to release this video to the season ticket holders, folks that they know will be there next year, regardless of what they do in the off season? Uh, and and it is just ridiculous. Um, they're in the midst of the worst season in Knicks franchise history, 
And instead of just letting sleeping dogs lie, and instead of just playing out the string and hopefully put themselves in a position where they'll get a top three draft pick, Phil Jackson releases this video, and it's just ridiculous. Why do you think he did it? I mean, you know, Phil Jackson is not always or traditionally has not been known for being completely uh, deaf or whatever about, you know, the, the court of public opinion. Why do you think he did this? Do you think this was his idea or did somebody push him into it? You know what? Given that organization and starting from Jim Dolan from the top, who, hands his, who has his hands on everything, I have to believe that a meeting was called. Phil Jackson was there. Jim Dolan was there. The head of public relations was there. Just somebody put this on the table, sold both Jim Dolan and Phil Jackson the idea that this would be a good idea, and they went with it. Now, I'm not sure if you remember at the press conference when Jim Dolan introduced Phil Jackson, he said he's going to leave all basketball decisions to him, that he was not going to have a role in anything that the organization did. Well, we've heard that in the past, and we've seen what happened when he wanted to go and get Carmelo Anthony and basically sold half the team to get him. And now this video gets released, and it's just making the organization look even worse than what it has been over the last couple of years. Andrew, can, can people who are longtime Knicks fans, uh, such as myself, I must say, um, are, are, can we trust Phil Jackson to rebuild this franchise over the next two, three years? I think you have to give him another shot, given the fact that they hired the new coach in Derek Fisher. They had players that they really they should not have waited to trade Iman Shumpert. They should not have waited to cut some of the guys that they did um, when they did. They should have done it in the beginning of the season and just hoped that some of the other players would develop as time went by. But when they were in the midst of that 16-game losing streak, I guess Jackson saw that the writing was on the wall. It wasn't going to get any better. Let's get rid of some of these players, increase the salary cap, to hopefully sign some of the top free agents that will be available next year. So, again, I don't think anybody had expectations, although Phil did say at the beginning of the season that he expected the team to qualify for a playoff spot. I don't think anybody else in New York, including New York Nick, longtime suffering fans, thought that was a possibility. Um, so I think they'll give him another year, see what he does all in the offseason in terms of free agency, in terms of making some trades, and possibly put a roster together next year that can compete. Now, you have to remember, the Eastern Conference is horrible. The last place team that will make the playoffs will be at least 10 games under 500. Now, the Knicks are currently about 18 to 19 games under 500. You mean to tell me that he could not put a roster together to at least compete for that eighth spot? Right now, the Nets, the Brooklyn Nets, are in the eighth and last spot, and they're like close to 10 games under 500. Under 500. But, Andrew, uh, I mean, you look at the, uh, at the upcoming free agent crop, and you see, you know, who are they going to go out and get? I mean, <laughs> the most optimistic people talk maybe about a Greg Monroe or something, but who do they What free agents are out there that the Knicks uh, can actually chase down here? Well, they're, they're hoping, one of the guys that they're hoping for is Kevin Love, who's currently with the Cleveland, um, the Cleveland Cavaliers. He can opt out of his contract and become a free agent. They're hoping that. 
um, the Gasol brother out in Memphis. He's also an unrestricted oh, free agent. Yeah. Right, and he has ties with uh, Phil Jackson because his brother, Powell, played for uh, the Los Angeles Lakers for years. So they're hoping that maybe they can kind of sway him to look at what the Knicks can offer from a monetary standpoint. Now, remember, when it all comes to free agencies, most of these players only have one opportunity to hit free agency lotto. And a lot of them will forsake going to a potential playoff team to get, to get that big money. And remember, those contracts are guaranteed. It's not like the NFL where if you get signed to a certain amount, you're only guaranteed a certain amount. You sign that contract as an NBA player, and you could break your foot the next day, and that money is guaranteed for life. Now, Andrew, and we're talking with Andrew Rosario. He's a sports reporter for Arise TV, our good friend here on the Mark Riley Show. And uh, when it comes to sports, we bring Andrew on to talk about it. <laughs> well, um, Mark. Andrew, i got to ask you, um, do you have an idea, any idea at all, what players from the current team will still be around when they uh, tip off in the fall of next season? Uh, honestly, no. Because no one's, no one's job, the only guy whose job is safe is Carmelo Anthony because he just re-signed with the Knicks for the amount of money that he did, and he's coming off a major knee surgery. So one, no one's going to be able, no one would want him because of the salary, and two, for the injury. Um, other than that, everybody's head will be on the trading block. Everybody. Even, even the trainer. He might be on the, he might be on the trading block too. <laughs> What about Andrea Bargnani? Uh, I heard they can't wait to get rid of him. True. Oh, look, they, they can't. I mean, it's lucky because this is the last year that his money, his, his salary comes off the books. They were trying to get rid of him right before the All-Star break. But because he's been injury-prone as well, and because of the amount of money that is on his contract, no one was going to take him. The Knicks couldn't even give him away. The Knicks couldn't even say, you know, you can take him, and we'll keep his salary until the end of the year. No, they didn't even want to do that. Wow. You talk about one of the biggest free agent bust in New York Knicks history, and, and Andre Bargnani, he's got to be right up there. Now, uh, when did they get, bring him in? 2012? Yep, yep. And he had, he had two years left on a contract. Um, they thought that the type of game that he has might help them because he basically, for a big guy, he also is a perimeter-type player, but he couldn't stay on the court. He tried to, he tried to do a Michael Jordan the first year he was with the Knicks and slam dunk from the free throw line and uh, ended up on his and ended up on his head and his elbow, ooh, ooh. and didn't even come close to the rim, and that was the start of his injuries with that team. Andrew, let's switch gears a little bit. And look at the Final Four. We've yes. got Duke, we've got Kentucky, we've got Wisconsin, and we've got Michigan State. Now, Michigan State was a seven seed in the Final yes. Four. And um, a lot of folks thought that they should have been ranked a little higher. A higher, um, yeah. You know, but did a lot of people think they were going to end up where they are? No, not at all. As a matter of fact, you know, if you look at the Final Four teams that are remaining, their road to the Final Four were the toughest. They had to be the number two seed of uh, Virginia and the number three seed Oklahoma to get where they are. So, uh, you know, you got to remember Tom Izzo is one of the most craftiest college coaches and most successful college coaches in the history. I mean, he's been to seven Final Fours. Yeah, and yeah. you know that that ranks right up there with the top guys. Absolutely. Now, let me ask you this: um, Wisconsin. I, I've seen Wisconsin play a couple of games, right? And uh, you know, 
they they kind of look mediocre until halfway through the second half, and then all of a sudden they just explode on people. What's the story with them? Yeah, they do. They do have a history of starting off slow, but you know they match Kentucky in size on both in both parts of the court, uh, offensively and defensively. I think one advantage that they have is that their guards and their forwards are better sh- perimeter shooters than Kentucky. If you looked at the Notre Dame game, which Kentucky just barely got through that game. Um, Notre Dame exposed them from the perimeter. They were making them guard them from the outside. They were hitting no shots. And the only reason that Kentucky won that game was they took advantage of their size late in the game. They shut out Notre Dame, I think, the last three and a half minutes of the game, and they constantly pounded the ball inside, and that's why they came away with the win. So I would say right now a slight edge goes to Wisconsin, again, because they have the same height, the same length as uh, Kentucky does. So you think Wisconsin can take Kentucky down? I mean, they've been undefeated all season. You think Wisconsin's the ones that can take them out? I think, as a matter of fact, in one of my ten brackets that I filled out, I did have uh, Wisconsin beating Kentucky in in the final four. And strictly for that measure, I think that when... Wisconsin looks at that tape against Notre Dame. I think they're going to come with a game plan that's going to be very similar. Now, remember, last year they faced each other again in the Final Four, and Kentucky came away with a 74-73 win. So there's a little bit of a revenge factor here as well. What do you think of Duke-Michigan State? Who do you think takes that? Well, you know what? Um, I like Duke. Um, I think it's going to be a close game. I think the difference is going to be – the fact that Duke is a little bit more um, offensive-minded than Michigan State. Michigan State has been known to go on offensive droughts throughout the game. And, you know, again, we talk about Tom Izzo and we talk about John Calipari and we talk about Bo Ryan, but Coach K, remember, he just won this past year the only co- Division One college basketball player to reach 1,000 victories. So that in itself, you know, gives a lot of, of credibility to, to what he's done. Um, you know, Duke's toughest game in this tournament was when they got to get to the Final Four when they beat Gonzaga, and they beat them pretty handily. So I'm going to give a slight edge to Duke as much as I cannot stand them. I'm a Notre Dame fan. Um, I'm giving a slight edge. Yeah, but I'll tell you what, Mark, if this game is close towards the end, look for Michigan's, Michigan State's defense to step up because they have had to make big plays um, in both their wins against Virginia and Oklahoma to get to where they are right now. Final quick topic, Andrew, and we really yeah. appreciate your time with us. Sure, sure. Um, Gino Ariema, a okay. great women's basketball coach, uh, got Connecticut back in the final four. Most people think they're going to win. Uh, I thought it was April Fool's at first, but he called men's college basketball in this country a joke. Was he serious? Uh, you know, I guess he was. Huh? Um, you know, when you're Gino, when you accomplish everything that you have accomplished, I guess you could you can come out and say something like that. The big difference between women's college basketball and men's college basketball is simple. The women are going to be there for four years, regardless. They're not coming out early. The men's, <laughs> in a lot of instances, are one and done. And the biggest reason is... If you're in a men's program and you play for a Kentucky or you play for a Duke or you play for a Michigan State and 
you have a monster season like three or four of the Kentucky guys, and you have millions of dollars waiting for you on draft day, um, what are you going to do? Go back for your second year, maybe risk breaking a leg, busting up an ankle, and watch all that money go down the drain? So in a way, I understand what he's saying, but there's a lot of reasons why the men's game gets criticized the way that it does. Now, the NBA has tried for the last couple of years to raise the age mm-hmm. in the men's game. Right now, you cannot get drafted unless you're 20 years old and you have to play at least one season. Uh, there's no more of you leaving uh, high school and getting drafted. A lot of these guys that have an opportunity to come out of high school and go to the NBA, what they have to do is spend a year or two in Europe until they reach that 20-year mark before they can make themselves eligible for the draft. So it all comes down, like everything else, Mark, to money, money, money. Well, yeah, they say the NC2A makes $900 million in revenue just for March Madness. Exactly. Um, and, and that's and another. Gino apparently just thinks that the, the game, you know, they can't hit shots, which seems to be true sometimes, huh? Well, yeah, I mean, if you look at especially the early round games, it was, it was pretty ugly. Um, but that's what March Madness is all about. I mean, we had some early upsets in the beginning. Uh, I had Iowa State in one of my brackets going to the final game, and they lost in the first round. So <laughs> just, like, just like the NFL, on any given Sunday, any given Monday, any team can win. Absolutely. Andrew Rosario, as always, man, great stuff. Thank you so much for joining us. Much appreciated. Mark, I hope to talk to you soon. And uh, if I had my choice right now, I would say Kentucky will win the whole thing. They'll run the table. Ah, okay. Safe bet, huh? (laughs) Yeah, very safe bet, exactly. All right. You take care, Andrew, man. I appreciate it. Thank you, Mark. We'll talk soon. Have a good one. So that was Andrew Rosario from Arias TV Sports. And, you know, I mean, the Final Four is coming up. And and let me say this, too, because I know there are going to be some people who will say, oh, man, what is he doing talking about college basketball? He's not supposed to be talking about sports. See, People, ladies and gentlemen, don't live by politics and outrage alone. They just don't. Um, Certainly, there's a lot of stuff you can be mad at, a lot of stuff you can be outraged about. But I, and this is just a personal belief, I don't think most people want to walk around with their teeth clenched. All that does is send you to the dentist, which, by the way, I need to do. Um, To me, there are other things going on in the world. Now, in this case, it's, you know, college basketball. Uh, Compared to some of the other tripe they put in the papers, uh, you know, uh, or on television, worse yet, college basketball at least is something to me that is worth talking about. I don't need to talk about Kim Kardashian. I don't need to talk about porn stars who want to date college basketball players. I don't want to get into the muck and mire of what a lot of people uh, end up being confronted with having to consume or burning in newspapers or putting it in their birdcage and let the, let the birds take care of the nonsense. So that's why every now and then we talk about things that are a little bit different. Now, speaking of which, uh, we have a done deal here in New York. It appears as though the politicians, now, they, they didn't get it in on time, technically speaking, because it went into about 2 o'clock this morning before the uh, Senate and Assembly agreed on a budget deal. Now, we talked about budgets a few weeks ago, 
on this program. And I know that budgets make people's eyes cross. You know, some people is Kim Kardashian, some people is budget numbers. But in this case, and it's, it's going to take probably another three news cycles before the media actually figures out who wins and who loses here. But there, the fact that there is always a group of winners and always a group of losers is maybe what's important that comes out of this budget process. Because it is, at the end of the day, a series of compromises. The governor wants certain things. The assembly wants certain things. The Senate wants certain things. The Senate says, we're not going for this stuff that the assembly wants. We're not going for certain things the governor wants. So they dance like this right up until the deadline, which was last night at midnight. And then they, you know, they, they extend it into a little bit of an extra session, and they thrash it out. Uh, from a procedural standpoint, not a whole hell of a lot has changed. This is how they've been doing budgets virtually since time immemorial. The question is, I know that the teachers are not happy. Teachers union, not happy both the city teachers' union and the state teachers' union, and it seemed like, seems like there's a spitting contest between them. Uh, Mulgrew, and I think the woman's name is Hagen, who's in charge of the state teachers, uh, not smart people, not smart. You know, it, the minute people see that there's a rift between the city teachers' union and the state teachers' union, then they exploit the rift. And who suffers? The teachers. So uh, you need to, you need to how, do, how do they say it? Sort that one out. How about that? Um, there are going to be other issues and questions that come out of this budget. And there are going to be people who will, after the fact, scream and holler about the fact that their particular ox got gored. But that's the nature of politics. If people want to change how the budget is done, then they have to change the people who do the budget. And I guarantee you this, guarantee you this, people are not ready to elect people who will make a drastic change in this process. They're just not. See, because when you take the Democratic-Republican paradigm, ain't none of these people, I don't care who they are, they're not thinking about changing the way this is done. Did I rant about this once before? I might have. But they're not going to change the way this is done. The way you change the way this is done is elect people and then say to them, you know what? You're going to change the way this is done or else. And that's not going to happen. I mean, I, I feel sad, but it's not going to happen. So New York State budget's done. Hoorah, hoorah. Um, and, of course, the Daily News says that the Assembly dragged it past the deadline. So those damn Democrats in the Assembly. Now, here's a real interesting story. And we've talked about this before, too, with individual Republicans. But a lot of these guys who would be the next Republican president, the ones who, you know, and so far it's been Ted Cruz, but I guarantee you, each and every one of these clowns, as they make their announcements of their run for president, will take time to slap Obamacare, to slap the Affordable Care. Oh, we need to repeal it. Oh, it's terrible. Oh, it's killing jobs. Oh, oh, oh. Yeah, well, get this. Scott Walker, Wisconsin. Chris Christie, Jersey. Bobby Jindal, Louisiana. Uh, Rick Perry, Texas. All oppose the Affordable Care Act and all have collectively applied for 
and won at least $352 million through grant programs set up by the law. Not according to me. It's according to federal records. So all of these guys, and they are guys, standing up there woofing about Obamacare. We need to get rid of it. We need to appeal it. We need to modify it so it doesn't look like it does now. So we can go back to the good old days when insurance companies could turn people down for pre-existing conditions. You know, you know the kind of stuff we're talking about here. At the same time, as they're selling these wolf tickets, they got their palms out. Now, this is, this is the part of the story that you knew was going to come. You know it. Sure as the sun rises in the east. Aides to these governors say they see no contradiction in getting these grants while criticizing the law. Of course they don't. Of course they don't. And, you know, they said, well, the grants were around prior to the ACA. It's important that we uh, continue these services for our citizens. Then leave Obamacare alone, clowns. You can do it. You can honestly do it. If you don't want to act like morons and, and try and score political points, slagging the president of the United States, who you're not going to run against, I might add. All y'all want to run next year. You have to run against Hillary or somebody, Martin O'Malley, Elizabeth Warren, whomever. But you see, this is how, and it, it, it's not, and, and again, let me emphasize, it's not limited to Republicans. This is not limited to Republicans. It's limited to politicians, by and large, and lobbyists and people like that. But they see nothing, nothing wrong, nothing hypocritical whatsoever in slagging something and then benefiting from it. They got no problem at all. I mean, and it's to me, like, how do you do that? If you have a problem with something, you got a problem with something. I don't, you know. I don't think there's anything wrong with that, but have the God have the courage of your convictions for goodness sake. Can you at least try to do that? I don't get the sense that these people see there's any reason to do that. I mean, they can get their, their spokespeople out and mouth platitudes, you know, and not as participating in the core elements of the ACA. And when they say they're only taking advantage of programs that existed before Obamacare, they're lying. Many of these programs were already established by Obamacare. Some of them were expanded by the law. And you see, uh, for uh, here's one example in, in this newspaper article. The law included $1.5 billion to enable medical workers to visit new mothers at home. The, mother, the money has enabled some states to set up programs where none had existed and allowed others to expand existing programs. Wisconsin, you know, home of Scott Walker, has more than doubled its home visit program under Obamacare. Now, see, part of the reason why they can get away with doing this is because they know good and well that they're never going to have to explain this to their red meat conservative audiences. They're not going to say, oh, look at what you did. What's wrong with you? We're not voting for you. Look at what you did. They're not doing it. All of that stuff kind of gets polished and wiped clean and, you know, chilled out a little bit. It's no biggie. 
So we got a couple minutes left. <clears throat> and of course, at the end of the show, we have something I like to call to the ridiculous. And in this case, our to the ridiculous story of the week involves a guy I actually met some years ago. He's a guy that's the proprietor, proprietor of the Moonlight Bunny Ranch brothel in Nevada. His name is Dennis Hoff. He's a really expansive, you know, big everything, big car, big this, big that. He's a, he's a big, big, he's not a big guy physically, he's decent size physically, but he's into bigness. That's his thing. So, you know, the Moonlight Bunny Ranch, by the way, is a fantastical money machine for Dennis Hoff. His seven brothels, because it's not just the Bunny Ranch, seven brothels make up 40% of North America's legal bordellos. He starred in the HBO series Cat House. So, what is Dennis Hoff's latest wrinkle? And by the way, he's getting crazy play for this. He is now advertising for official quality control testers. What does he mean? These are people who get paid to have sex with the hookers at the Bunny Ranch and also evaluate their performance. Uh, don't y'all, you know, don't pick up your pens because <laughs> I'm not giving you the address. All right. But this is this is what he's doing. He says that, uh, you know, these are our secret shoppers. They have to be experienced, educated and well-rounded. And he also wants to have some women and some couples that are involved in this or that he wants to be involved in this. It's fascinating stuff. Fascinating stuff. And and I have to say, uh, you know, I'm not, a, I'm not a fan of prostitution, but Dennis Hoff is an extraordinary businessman. He has taken that whole bunny ranch concept and taken it to new heights. And now he's actually into quality control on behalf of who? The consumer. Anyway, time for us to go. Jason Taubenfeld, as always, man, thank you so much for everything. Stay tuned for all the great radio right here on the Progressive Radio Network. We'll be back with you next week, 6 p.m. Eastern Daylight Savings Time for the Mark Riley Show. I am Mark Riley. Have yourselves a great evening and a better week ahead.